This morning, we're, we're going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. As we look at the mercy and compassion that the Good Samaritan showed to a man in need, I thought, man, mothers embody that so well, <laughs> constantly. Last night, my wife was up at midnight with our youngest boy who, who started throwing up, and I, I went to say Happy Mother's Day to her this morning, and I think she got a total of about 45 minutes of, of sleep. But uh, that's, uh, you never know when, when the call of duty comes for a mom. And we're, I'm thankful for her, as I know you're thankful for your wives and, and mothers this morning. Parenting can be uh, tricky at times. It requires a lot of discernment. I, I read a story this week that, that reminded me of that. It was a story that this dad uh, walks by his teenage son's room, and he notices that everything is clean. Everything's put away, the bed is made, and Dad's like, uh-oh, something's not right here. <laughs> and he starts to fear the worst. You know, what? what is going on? Why is my teenage son's boy's uh, room so clean? And he finds a letter. All these fears start going through his mind. He opens the letter and he begins reading it. The letter says, Dear Dad, it's with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with mom and you. I've been finding real passion with Stacy and she is so nice. But I knew you would not approve because she smokes weed and drinks a lot and the fact she's much older than I am. But it's not only the passion, Dad. She's pregnant. Stacy said that we'll be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. We share a dream of having many more children together. Stacy has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. In fact, we'll be growing it for ourselves and trading it with other people in the commune for all the cocaine and ecstasy we want. In the meantime, we'll pray that science will find a cure for AIDS so that Stacy can get better. She sure deserves it. <laughs> Don't worry, Dad. I'm 15 and I know how to take care of myself. Someday, I'm sure, we'll be back to visit so you can get to know your many grandchildren. Love, Joshua. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Jason's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the bad report card on the kitchen table. <laughs> Call when it's safe for me to come home. <laughs> Stories with unexpected twists have a powerful way of disarming people, don't they? And, and changing their heart to have a different response. <laughs> Jesus knew that. All right. That was a great example modern day. Jesus was the master of telling stories with unexpected twists and turns to disarm us, to prepare us to receive truth that we may not have been able to receive otherwise. Parable of the Good Samaritans is one of the best of those. We, we know this parable has changed the world just by looking around. When I, when I first told Aaron, Pastor Aaron, that this week I'll be talking about good, the Good Samaritan, he thought I was talking about a service project at one of the Good Samaritan nursing homes in town. That's how much this story has changed the world. From coast to coast, there are hospitals called Good Samaritan. There, there are nursing homes called that. There's a ministry called Simply Samaritans that has over 200, 201 branches around the world. They deal with people who are on the brink of suicide. 
lot of us have heard of Samaritan's Purse, the organization connected with Franklin Graham. Listen to their mission statement. They say, we're a non-denominational evangelical Christian organization providing spiritual and physical aid to hurting people around the world. War, poverty, natural disasters, disease, famine. We go in to share the love of Jesus with these people. They were here when, when the hotshot tragedy happened. They set up camp here for several months and sent out teams to go help with the rebuilding in Yarnell. George W. Bush, first inaugural address. He said, I can pledge our nation to a goal when we see that wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, we will not pass to the other side, which is, of course, a reference to this parable. For those of you with a more British flair, Queen Elizabeth in 2004, during her Christmas message, she alluded to the Good Samaritan parable, and she said this, everyone is our neighbor, no matter what race, creed, or color. The need to look after a fellow human being is far more important than any cultural or religious differences. So to say this story has changed the world is a massive understatement. But the danger with its familiarity is that we come here this morning and miss what Jesus has to say to us. As we go through it this morning, I pray that He will open it up afresh to us, challenge us, encourage us, and send us out with a mission to live out what He's talking about. Amen? Alright. Let's jump in at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. First, before we look at the story, we want to see why did Jesus tell this story. Jesus didn't tell his stories in a vacuum. As you know, he traveled around Israel and various people encountered him and he used these stories in real life settings. He wasn't writing a book and mailing it to people. He was having conversation. So what was the conversation here? Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you notice why this man asked this question? It says right in the text. To test Jesus. He wanted to, to put Jesus on the spot. And we don't know if his motives were next, necessarily evil. Sometimes they were. They came to trap Jesus. This leads me to the question, why do we come to Jesus? A lot of us come to Jesus or to God with, with our questions. Are we coming to, to test him? Or are we coming to learn from Him? That's an important difference. It'll, it'll affect how the interaction goes. He's got a very important question. I mean, as far as the questions that go in life, this one's at the top of the list. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a common question at the time, and I don't need to talk about how important that is. But Jesus, as He's so good, a lot of times people come to test Jesus. What's He do? He turns it around and lets them see, I'm going to test you. All right? Because at the beginning of Luke, what did it tell us? It tells us that when Jesus came, the hearts of many would be revealed. When we come to Jesus, it's our hearts that get revealed. So Jesus turns it on this expert in the law. That means he knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards. All right? He turns it back on him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, 
and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Alright, there's the, the expert in the law's response. How did he do? Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now here's an important thing. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, the tense of do is not just, hey, go do this once or twice and you'll be good to go. It means do this every time, 100% of the time, with all your heart and you will live. <laughs> He's setting the bar really high. So you look at the qualifiers in the verses that the, the scribe had quoted. Love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And when it talked about loving your neighbor, did it say just kind of love them? What did it say? Love your neighbor. <laughs> that must be in the footnotes. As yourself. High bar. Now what's this do? This puts this man in a spot where he realizes I don't do this all the time. I love God some, but not all the time, and not with all my heart. And I don't always love my neighbor as myself. That makes him uncomfortable. Maybe it makes us uncomfortable today. And when we feel uncomfortable at something Jesus says, we have a choice. And this man had the choice. Do I ask Jesus for help, realizing that I need a Savior? Or do I seek to justify myself. To make myself look right before Him. Do I ask Him for help or do I seek to justify myself? Verse 29 says that this expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now there's one level on which this looks like a, a good question. Okay, in the Old Testament, neighbor was used in many different contexts and it could mean any, anything from the person I work with to a close friend, to a lover in Song of Solomon, to a, to a, a foreigner that lives in our country. There, there are a lot of different contexts, but really what we learn from what we just read, he just wants to justify himself. What, what, he, what is he trying to do? He's trying to limit what neighbor means. So that he can look at it and say, yeah, I've done that. He's really trying to water it down. And sometimes we do that. When we see the, the high demands that God lays on us, well, as long as I narrow it down to this prayer, or going to church every Sunday morning, or throwing a 20 in the plate, or, or however we try to limit it down, we try to make it manageable. That's what this guy's doing. He wanted to limit the law. Who is my neighbor is really kind of a polite way of saying, who is not my neighbor? Who is it I'm allowed to hate or ignore or look over? Jesus. He wouldn't come out and say that, so he says it the other way. What Jesus wanted him to see was his need for help from Jesus. He wanted this man to see like he wants us to see. We need a Savior. We need supernatural power to do what the law requires. That was the purpose of the law. The law is not evil. It is good. It has a purpose from God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, starting at verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. There's one of those big qualifier words written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Okay, what's the problem here? It says the person who does these things will live by them. Here's the problem in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, it's the exact one we're looking at here, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. There's the kicker. Jesus doesn't put limitations on it. He says, if you live according to the law, you will live. But one mess up, one lie, one time you covet, one time you hate that person I've called you to love, you fail. That's why when we look at the demands of God, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's kind of like some people say, we got three guys standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Okay, and the Grand Canyon represents the gap between us and God. All right? And so some of us want to try to jump that gap. And so you got me, just the average Joe, and maybe you got an Olympic long jumper next to me. And, and I say, hey, I'm going to give it a whirl. I'm going to try my best. And I run full speed, get to the edge, and five feet, and I'm down there. Now the long jumper says, hey, I'm an Olympian. All right, I got this. Okay, so he, he backs up and he goes full speed and he jumps 25 feet. But guess what? He's still going to the bottom because the gap is insurmountable without help. Some people compare it to shooting a medicine ball from half court. <laughs> okay, some of us might be able to throw that thing one or two feet. Some of us might be able to shoot it 10 feet, but none of us are getting it in the basket, right? It's just too heavy. So what do we do with this? this realization that I can't make myself right before God. I can't meet all of His demands. Well, thankfully, Paul goes on in Galatians 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He's saying, look, Jesus took all that sin and that shortcoming upon Himself. Because God knew you couldn't make it. He sent His Son to bridge that gap. You must rely on Him. Don't try to justify yourself. Don't limit it. Admit it. Admit your need for help. He goes on in verse 23 of Galatians 3, Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified, made right by faith. What he's saying is the law is like this guardian, like this school teacher. It was sent to show us all the ways we need help and to lead us to here's the Savior you need. That's the response when we feel overwhelmed. This guy wanted to limit it down, and I picture that like I have this canteen of water. And there's these people around me that need water. I've got to figure out who I can give that to because I've only got so much water because I'm doing it in my own power. 
contrast that with what Jesus is saying. Trust in me. I'll send my Holy Spirit. He will be a spring of living water in you. And you'll overflow to those people around me. But Jesus is going to tell him a story. The man asked this question, who is my neighbor? He wants to limit it down. Jesus is going to tell him one of the greatest stories of all time. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious. You know, we talk about the red light district in Phoenix, like Van Buren. In Chicago, we talked about the south side. There are areas you just want to be really careful when you go there. This was one of those places. And it's interesting that between Jerusalem and Jericho, it was about 18 miles. And during that 18 miles, the altitude dropped 3,000 feet. That's why it says he went down to Jericho. Now you think about 3,000 feet. That's the distance it drops from here to Phoenix in 90 miles. Drop that much in 18 miles. Not only are you worried about these bandits and these robbers that would often attack people, you're, you're traveling on a steep road. This is perilous territory. So this guy's walking down the road. We don't know much about him. Just as a man. Walking down the road when he was attacked by robbers. That word robbers has the idea of armed gang members. Clothes were a valuable commodity in that day. So often they, that's what they would steal. That's why it says they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. These were merciless robbers that, that attacked this man. Alright? And as we go into the rest of the story... I want us to think about a question. We're going to look at two men first, the priest and the Levite. And as we look at them, I want to ask the question, who am I, who are you, when no one is looking? Okay? When no one's watching. Listen to what it says. Verse 31, A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. They walked on by. And we look at this and we say, man, this is a priest, a religious leader, a Levite who helps out the religious leaders. And they're in one of Jesus' stories. Why don't they help him? The thing is, life doesn't happen that way, does it? We don't, we don't always have the camera on us. These guys, if this really happened, we don't know if it did or if it's just a story, but if it did really happen, they didn't know Jesus was going to tell a story about it. They were just going through their everyday life. Maybe they're walking home from their duty in Jerusalem and they're tired and they're, they're in a hurry and, and they see this and, and they don't want to slow down. That's life for us, right? We, we don't live in a reality show. I watch reality shows and I say, how real could that be? Because when there's a camera on you, no matter how real you try to be and you know the nation's watching, you're going to act a little different, right? Life doesn't work that way. A lot of life, when we leave here and you go to your work and, and you go shopping and, and we go into our neighborhoods, Nobody's watching but God. That, that's the scenario here. And they walk on by. We know this happens. Some of you know the story. When I was 19 years old, lived in Ohio, Lorraine, Ohio. There was some gang activity there, and I went into a Super K one time. I just wanted to pick up one thing. And, and I'm walking in, and all of a sudden, I feel something hard hit me in the back of the head. 
And I must have been out for a couple seconds at least, because next thing I know, I wake up on the ground, and there's these two guys just wailing on me. And I'm just coming to, trying to figure out what is going on. They, they get up, and they run away. And, and as I sit up, I notice this large crowd of people, like, watching. And I, and I look, and I got my wallet and my keys. And I'm like, man, what was that about? They didn't take my wallet. They didn't want my car. But all these people are watching. This one lady comes up and says, come jump in my car. We'll go track them down. They, they just pulled out. And I'm like, it's okay. I've had enough of those guys today. We, we know this happens, right? Sometimes things happen to people, and we watch. We watch. We, we don't get involved. We don't know why for these guys. Some people have said it's a priest and a Levite. Maybe they didn't want to become unclean ritually. But that doesn't make sense because it says they were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That means they were done with their duty in Jerusalem and they're probably heading home. They're not heading to the temple. They're, they're heading home. Luke doesn't really give them an excuse, so we probably run into trouble when we try to explain why they didn't. Bottom line is they saw someone they didn't stop to see what the need was. Okay? We think about why is it that we don't do that. Maybe, maybe that's what Jesus wants us to do more than to worry about the priest and the Levite. Sometimes it's like what Martin Luther King said about this story. He said, maybe these guys were worried about what will happen to me if I help him. You know, maybe this, this half-dead guy's like bait and the robbers are still waiting for some other poor sap to stop by and they're going to nail him. What's going to happen to me if I help him? But Martin Luther King says, maybe the question we should be asking is, what will happen to him if I don't help him? See, sometimes we've got our focus all about, all about me. Now, we've had two guys, right? A priest and a Levite. And we all know the rule of threes in great storytelling. Okay? The three little pigs, right? The, the first two don't get it. The third pig with the bricks... He nails it, right? It's often that third, third character that succeeds where the first two failed. Now, the, the Jews listening in, they're probably, they have their expectations as to who this third character is going to be. Because in the Old Testament, sometimes there were these lists. And they would go, the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. The priests the Levites and the Israelites. A couple times that happens in the Old Testament. So they're ready. They're ready to hear the, the, the plain old Israelite, just like me, is the one that's going to succeed. Alright? So they're listening. The scribe's listening. You only imagine their shock when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, to many of us today, we read that and we're like, yeah, so? To them, Amy Levine says it would sound like this. Larry, Curly, and Osama bin Laden. You didn't expect that third one, did you? Okay, that's how these guys viewed Samaritans, many of them. They, they hated them. It's the idea that I'd rather die than acknowledge that someone in that group helped me. They're, they're the enemies, and the history goes way back. Back when Israel was divided into north and south, the northern kingdom was where Samaria was, and then Assyria came and deported all the Jews out of there, most of them, and then they imported Babylonians, 
Babylonians were like the ultimate bad dudes in the Old Testament. Babylonians, some leftover Jews, they have babies. And so the rest of Israel looks at them as evil half-breeds. And they had their own temple and their own law. And, and there were always these wars between the north and the south. And one time, the north where Samaria was actually came down to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. They, they stole 200,000 women and took them back with them. God confronted them and said, take those 200,000 women back. And they did, but you can imagine the tension. Then later on, when the southern kingdom, after their own deportation, comes back and they're rebuilding the temple... You know who it was standing around mocking them, talking trash to them? It was the Samaritans. Oh yeah, you're building that wall and that temple. Even if a fox ran on that, it could knock it down. <laughs> Lame builders. That, that stoked the tension even more. You remember the conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman, right? And John, Jesus sits down and asks her for a drink of water and she is totally shocked. She's like, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the kind of hatred we're talking about. So we, we think about this, and we think about who is it that, that you, that we feel that way about today? Who's the enemy? Who's the person we can't stand? That's what the Jews heard. Jesus goes on and says, He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Where the priest and the Levite walked on by, this, this Samaritan went to the man. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You notice what Jesus is doing in the story. He quickly hits the priest and the Levite who went past him. Now he's zooming in to show this audience the lengths this Samaritan went to. Helped him with his time, his money, his stuff, his effort, his compassion. That inward drive to help someone was turned into action. Then he gets to the punchline. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The scribe standing there in front of all of his friends is now on the spot. Which of these three was a neighbor? And what Jesus is doing, he's really changing the question in some ways from who is my neighbor out there to are you a neighbor? Are you a neighbor? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. We don't know if he answered that way because he couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. No. <laughs> he didn't want, maybe he didn't even want to acknowledge. Okay, it was the Samaritan Jesus. He just says the one who had mercy on him. But either way, it's the correct answer. Jesus changed it from who is my neighbor to are you a neighbor, And that's what he would do to us today. Rather than us trying to limit down, if I met my checklist, who, who is it that I'm supposed to love? Can I narrow that down See, as small as possible? He's asking each one of us. He's saying a neighbor is one who shows mercy to the one in need along the way. 
as we go out from here this week and we encounter people in need, are we neighbors to those in need? One more application. The neighbor in this story was a hated enemy (laughs) for this man. That would shake him up. And so we've got to ask ourselves, who are the hated enemies that Jesus may have inserted today? Amy Levine said it this way. She said, Samaria today has various names. The West Bank, Occupied Palestine, Greater Israel. To hear the parable today, we only need to update the identity of the figures. Here's the updated version. I'm an Israeli Jew on my way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I'm attacked by thieves, beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. Two people who should have stopped to help me pass by. The first is a Jewish medic from the Israel Defense Forces. The second, a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church USA. But the person who takes compassion on me and shows me mercy is a Palestinian Muslim whose sympathies lie with Hamas, a political party whose charter not only anticipates Israel's destruction, but also depicts Jews as some subhuman demons responsible for all the world's problems. She says, you want to get a feel for how this story hit those Jews in the first century? There it is. Jesus is challenging us, isn't he? He's pushing buttons that we don't want pushed. And he's asking us, am I a neighbor? So as we close today, I want to hit what Jesus said to the the scribe. After he answered correctly, the one who had mercy, he looked at him and said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go be that neighbor that the good Samaritan was. I want to end with two questions today. The first one takes us back to the beginning. Why do you come to Jesus? Do you come to Him to test Him or to justify yourself or to limit things so that you can feel good? Or do you come to Him to ask for the Savior that you need, that He is? And I think about that. And we may ask, why would I do that? Well, when we look at the actions of the Good Samaritan, that's exactly how how God loved us in Jesus Christ. There's a picture of it in the Old Testament in His love for Israel. But the picture carries over truly to, to us as well in our sin. He says to Israel, Ezekiel 16, 4, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you, to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. Talk about total helplessness, right? He's saying to Israel, that's how you were. He could say to us, that's how you were. That's how you are on your own. Listen to this, verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. He actually writes it twice. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. 
See, Jesus doesn't just talk about being a good Samaritan. He was the ultimate embodiment of that. So when we say, why would I ask him for help? Because he's offered that compassion, that mercy, that salvation to you. Why wouldn't I ask him for help? You may be here this morning needing to do that for the first time. Why do you come to Jesus? Second, are you a neighbor? Are you a neighbor? And as we go out from here, will we have our eyes open to those along the way moments? Yeah, there's no cameras running. As I go to work and as I walk my neighborhood and go to that park, will my eyes be aware? Unless it requires getting out of our comfort zone. Liz Dudek right here. I talked to her this week and she was telling me how there's a new, new person in her apartment building. Liz went over to welcome this new woman to the apartment building and as she welcomed her, she, she learned that this woman had been run over by her husband three or four times in a vehicle. And she's now healing. I remember reading a story about that in the newspaper a few months ago. I don't know if it was the same one. Do you remember reading that at the DES? But what I love is, Liz, you never would have known that if you hadn't taken the time to say, well, there's somebody new here. I want to go find out a little bit about him. And, and that's the essence. This man stopped what he was doing, where he was going. He went and found out. We'll pray for you as you continue to pass that love on. We all have opportunities like that. The only question is, are my eyes open to them? One final story. Friday, I took my boys and we met with a grand, grandfather and his grandson. They had asked if we could meet because his grandson is 12 years old. About six years ago, I did a funeral service for this young boy's father who had committed suicide. It was messy. He, he hung himself and it didn't work and he spent days in the hospital and then he passed away. This little boy was like six years old at the time. And Grandpa called and said, could we meet up because this 12-year-old is, is acting up in school and I think a lot of it might be because of the, the pain of uh, maybe he's wrestling with who he is with his dad not being there. And, and so I took my boys and, and we met up at Dairy Queen and, and we talked. And after we talked for a while, me and the grandpa got ta- to talking about how dark the world is these days. Um, he, he was uh, about looking at the news, you know, just the, the things that our children are going to have to think about. And I, I thought a lot about that. And, Here's a couple things I thought, because as, as we look at this story of the, the Good Samaritan, it happens against a dark backdrop. The backdrop was this man was left half dead. He was stripped naked and he was on the verge of death. That's dark. And you look at the news. You look at just this week, two, two men from Phoenix, one who went to Yavapai College, went to Texas and, and opened open gunfire. They, were, they didn't get very far, but those are things I didn't think about as a kid. And I thought about this. In the backdrop of darkness, fear and terror can dominate a nation and control the actions of individuals. But only the love and forgiveness of Jesus can truly win a heart for God. We hold the possibility of glowing in the dark. You know, Because I believe it's often the darker it gets, the more of an opportunity we have in the power of Jesus to stand out and show the world what Jesus offers. I know it's dark, 
But listen to what Robertson says about this. This parable of the Good Samaritan has built the world's hospitals, and if understood and practiced, will remove race, prejudice, national hatred, and war, as well as class jealousy. It's got world-transforming power. Jesus, we need you. We need you, Jesus. Use us to shine that light.